Welcome to the APOE4.info podcast, where we discuss science and health from our perspective as carriers of a gene associated with higher risk of Alzheimer's and heart disease. Here is your host, Julie Gregory. Hi, friends. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Dr. Dayan Goodnow. I need to warn you in advance, this is a longer podcast, almost one and a half hours, but full of fascinating information, including the results of his recent clinical trial. Dr. Goodnow's research into the biochemical mechanisms of disease started in 1990. His curiosity about the biochemistry of life is as insatiable today as it was 30 years ago. In those 30 years, Dr. Goodnow invented and developed advanced diagnostic and bioinformatic technologies, designed and manufactured novel and natural biochemical precursors, and identified biochemical prodromes of numerous diseases, including Alzheimer's disease, other dementias, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, and many more. Dr. Goodnow is now going beyond disease and the detection of biochemical dysfunctions to diagnose and moving towards a correction of biochemical dysfunctions to treat disease. Dr. Goodnow's new focus is to defeat the entropy of aging by creating strategic biochemical and biofunctional reserve capacity in advance of known disease risks, such that the human body can maintain the physical and biological functions of life indefinitely and without disease. Welcome, Dr. Goodnow. Thank you for joining us. So much has happened since you last uh, were here. Um, Thank you for sharing your work with us. One of your recent achievements includes the publication of a new book entitled Breaking Alzheimer's, a 15-year crusade to expose the cause and deliver the cure. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, one of those things you start and you don't realize what you're getting into until you get into it. And then once you start writing it, you realize, oh my goodness, now that you're into it, you kind of get past the point of no return and you can't stop finishing it. Right. So I've got to say it, it was a excellent read. And as a lay person, you made it very accessible. Um, and I think you did that by making it educational and you used a lot of analogies and it, I mean, you did an amazing job. I think you hit multiple audiences. Well, thank you. Well, one of the things that, like, cause I'm a, you know, I'm a generalist in many areas. Like what my real value is to consolidate research from multiple avenues. So even though I'm an expert in specific fields, certainly in the biochemistry field, um, and over time, it's so easy to get enamored with the complexity of science that scientists forget that there are basic organizing principles that are common in everyday life situations. And people get so intimidated by science. They think, oh, this is so complicated. This is in some sort of other universe, but that's just not true. Most of the things in science, the biology of the human body follows 
general logic that we see in everyday life situations. The words change and the words get more complicated, but these basic underlying principles are the same across multiple um, experiences and multiple expertises in our lives. And so I really wanted to kind of break down this um, this fear of science and say, look, this is not that complicated. And scientists are just people, you know, they're basically plumbers and electricians, but they're just doing something in a different area. And so then I go through that and and try to teach people how we learn these principles. And there are certain aspects of human biology that are not that complicated to understand. Um, Some of the details become, you know, you get in the weeds quite easily. And then also for people to understand how and why, the last chapter kind of de- deals into the why don't we have cures for these diseases? Like we have this, the, the technological improvements that we have seen in so many different areas. And I kind of explain just the structural reasons why and not, not to blame anybody, but to realize to take responsibility of is understand what the organizational infrastructure of medicine is and um, how private industry works versus public industry and universities and what's changed in regards to intellectual property and and why universities are not really doing public work anymore. And um, and this translation of, of, you know, we talk about all these supplements and things that have tremendous amounts of, of clinical validation over the years, but they never seem to get appropriately implemented into routine care and why is that and so i kind of explain that but not in a you know angry woe is us that work on you know nutritional aspects of it but saying this is just reality and you have to kind of deal with reality and if you want to change the reality of delivering safe medicine you know, nutritional and understanding how human biochemistry works. Um, you, you know, you have to understand what it takes to actually implement change into our health and lifestyles. And that's kind of where I'm, cause I'm a big science guy. Like I come from large clinical trial work. I come from the pharmaceutical industry. So, so I come from the dark side, if you will. Okay. And so, and understanding like there's certain rules in the pharmaceutical industry and there's certain aspects of clinical trial work that have real validity to it. And we can't throw that out when we get into our nutritional based medicines. Um, and so my interest is population medicine. My interest is in medicine that can be applied to our entire populations and changing epidemiological endpoints, actually changing the percent of people in our country that have dementia, the percent of people who get dementia next year or in cancers or reducing the, the, the autism epidemic that we're seeing. Those are the things that, that are my passion and the, you know, the mechanism, which I can deliver that is through, you know, protom sciences and the clinical, you know, the blood testing, supplementation, but it's more of a human biochemical engineering. Okay. Like it's really, I'm a farmer of humans. And um, basically we're just basically giving humans the appropriate fertilizer so that we can get the growth that we want um, 
Right. No, you're doing an amazing job of bridging several camps and we need more people like you in this field. Um, Getting back to the book, you describe yourself as a biochemical detective and you discuss a mass spectrometry technology platform that you invented that ultimately led you to identify plasmalogens as a major player. Tell us how plasmalogens emerge from amongst the thousands of biochemicals that you were studying. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I, I fundamentally view our living world through a lens of chemistry. Okay. And there's really three large organization principles of our world around us. There is um, biology which is basically the interaction of organisms or cells, like how humans interact or how animals interact with each other. And that's kind of at a very large macro level. And then at the chemistry level, we're dealing with the atoms of the world, molecules and how those physical molecules, your glucose in your blood, um, your proteins and so on, those are chemical entities. And so that's the three-dimensional world that we live in. And then if you get deeper into the the science, you get into physics, right? And you look into quantum mechanics and, and how the nature of reality is and it becomes almost becomes philosophical, becomes um, in that area. But so, but realistically speaking, we live in a world of chemistry and we're controlled by very simple laws. The simple first law of thermodynamics is that, you know, energy or matter cannot be created or destroyed. We just move things around. Okay, sunlight comes in and it converts carbon dioxide and water into glucose and plants. And then we take that information and then we burn it up with carbon dioxide and water and we use the energy. So we're just moving electrons around. We're moving atoms around. It's the same stuff, right? Okay, the same, you know, we all have a piece of Elvis in us right now. That's how many molecules are floating around, you know, from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That's chemistry, okay? And so when you look at when, we, when the genetics revolution occurred in the 90s and people were being able to sequence entire genomes of plants and animals and things and um, understanding how the, the, the systems work, the um, chemistry is really that core. And I needed to find a technology that could measure comprehensively all these small molecules so that we could see these transformations. So we could actually see the first law of thermodynamics in action. What happens when you stub your toe, basically, which is, you know, like a simplified version of getting a disease, something changes, right? You have a cause and effect situation. And so the technology I invented was called non-targeted metabolomics. And the only way to do that was using high field mass spectrometry. And so I developed a technology using ion cyclotron mass spec. It works with liquefied helium. So it runs at minus 183 Celsius type thing. So it's uh, like a superconducting magnet. So it's high tech science that allowed us to measure thousands and thousands of molecules simultaneously. And the original concept was to study biology, study chemistry, study the effects of genetic modification of plants and animals and so on and so forth. And uh, then obviously to apply it to human biology and human diseases. And so that's where it came from. And so when we started applying it to the clinical trial world, that we were looking at different disease states, what's different? Because if I can physically see a phenotypic difference, so, you know, you are healthy, your sister has ovarian cancer, what's different between you and your sister? Like if I can physically see if there's something different with you, there has to be a, a chemical signature that matches that difference because, you know, we're just not, um, you know, we're not, we're, there's reality there. And so that's chemistry technology allowed me to do that. And so what, 
over many, many diseases, we started to see obviously very powerful diagnostic capabilities. So virtually every single human disease is diagnosable with um, this type of technology. And this is the core of the proton scan technology. And when it was applied to Alzheimer's disease, okay, we saw these molecules called plasmalogens decrease, not just plasmalogens, but many others. And that's one of the challenges of science is that when you have a, the cause and effect relationship can be quite diverse. The farther you get away from an event, the harder it is to identify the actual cause, right? So you can take a look at, you know, radiation disease from people from Nagasaki or Hiroshima 20 years later that were caused by the nuclear bomb. Well, it's if you didn't know about the nuclear bomb, you'd have a very difficult time figuring out why you have certain radiation damages 30 years later, right? And so, so the farther you get away from a causation event, the more complicated the situation gets. And same thing happens in human body. So you get one insult and then you get primary effects and secondary effects. And, and by the time you get all things happening, your body's equilibrating and you get thousands and thousands of changes. And so the challenge is trying to work your way back up to where did that simple event occur? And that's where the plasmalogen, so the whole family plasmalogens, and then it just kept becoming reproducibly observed to be deficient. So people with Alzheimer's disease and cognitive impairment had low levels of plasmalogens. And these low levels correlated with the severity of their cognitive impairment. And it also correlated with the rate at which they declined. And it also correlated with who got dementia in the future versus who did not get dementia in the future. And so from that clear observation, the question needs yeah. has to become, well, why? What is it about plasmalogens? What is it about the plasmalogen deficiency that is linked? You know, and the question is, is it just a symptom? Is something else happening? And, you know, are plasmalogens just, you know, smoke coming out of your tailpipe because something wrong with the engine? But smoke, is it just some sort of, you know, uh, coincidental observation? And as you research it more and more and more, you realize, no, this is a it becomes core. We can't remove this from the equation. Even when we go to post-mortem analysis of brain, um, the plasmalogen association with cognition is the most um, strongly associated. It is the most proximate, if you are. It's the closest to the event we're measuring, which is reduced cognition of anything else in the human body. And um, that's kind of how it came to be. So from basic um, just investigational science, these molecules came up and then Obviously, other areas of there's molecules in cancer that are critically report important. Autism, MS, different diseases have different biochemical changes, and the biggest thing was that this revealed that biochemical deficiencies precede our diseases. They come, they're prodromes, and they are predictive of future events because your body is adjusting and it can tolerate dysfunction for a certain period of time, but eventually it turns into disease. And that's how it all came to be. So it's a long answer to your question, but that's kind of how it happens. Well, you describe Alzheimer's as a plasmalogen deficiency. Is it really that simple? Can we just replenish our plasmalogen levels and be protected? To a certain degree, yeah, it actually really is. It's um, obviously there's other aspects that contribute to the scenario. So when you when we get older, and not old old, we're not talking about ninety. We're talking even in our fifties and sixties, our brain starts shrinking. Okay, so we get focused on Alzheimer's as this um, 
you know, this main event, but Alzheimer's is actually not the main event. And it's um, brain shrinkage, neuropathologies, reducing brain health. Alzheimer's is just a symptom. Okay. Alzheimer's is not actually a disease at all. It's just a symptom of a disease. And it's <laughs> your, your body is designed to work in certain balance. So plasmalogen deficiencies are one of those really strange ones because your body must make your own plasmalogens and you make a lot of them. Probably 20% of all the lipids in the entire body are plasmalogens, right? 23% of your, of your brain, um, liver, your heart, I mean, lungs, kidney. So imagine, so if you can think about this, so when you lose plasmalogens, it's not just you lose plasmalogens. So you're going to have company over for Thanksgiving and you want to bake your favorite cake and you have a recipe for baking cake and your cake says, okay, I need, I need two cups of milk and four eggs and, you know, a pound of flour, whatever is in your recipe. Right. And you go to your cupboard and you go to your fridge and you say, oh, darn it. I don't have enough milk. I only have one cup of milk. I don't have two cups of milk for my recipe. And so do you make your cake with, with one, one cup less milk? Or do you say, well, you know what? I'll make half a cake. I'll make, instead of a whole cake, I'm going to use one cup of milk and two eggs and I'm going to use a half a pound of flour. So instead of, so instead of making, because otherwise if I make it, if I make the cake with everything else the same, but I use only one cup of milk, I'm going to have a, a brick for, for, uh, for a cake. Right. And so you readjust your recipe based upon the material that you have at your disposal to make your cake. And that's what your body is doing every night when you go to sleep. It's making cakes. It's, it's building. It's, it's bakers. So a baker is a chemist. Okay. When you're, when you're baking something, you're, you're doing chemistry. Chemistry is nothing different than cooking. Okay. You're chemically transforming something from one to another. So the egg in the shell is very different than the egg in your cake because it's been cooked now and it's been, you've been, you've chemically transformed that egg into something different. And that's what your body does. So every single cell of your body, you have trillions of them. Okay. They have a bunch of bakers inside every single cell. And those bakers are making things. They're making membranes, they're making this and they're making proteins and they're making whatever. But those bakers can only make what they can from the material that's in their pantry. And so when you lose plasmalogens in the human brain, you don't lose just plasmalogens. Okay. Those bakers can't make things appropriately. So you lose other membrane, phosphatidylcholines decrease, ethanolamines decrease, your cholesterol and your hormones will decrease. Those will all come down because your, your, your body is going to adjust to the amount of materials available to it. And so that's why brain shrinkage occurs. There's obviously um, other aspects of life. Like plasmalogens aren't the only thing we don't live and survive on plasmalogens alone, but you're, but it's a critical component of brain health in terms of synaptic function um, and um, membrane modulation and so on and so forth. So, but overall plasmalogens, I think people should look at, there's a lot of things that people, there's words that most people understand. They hear about words like oxidative stress, right? They hear about words like homocysteine, for instance, and um, um, membrane dysfunction, membrane peroxidation. These are type of things that people think about. But really, the human body is a very simple design biologically. It runs like your car engine. And there's the two core things that must work for you to live 
is one is your electrochemistry, and that is the conversion of energy. Okay, we take the human body is a is a hybrid electric car. Okay, we we burn hydrocarbons to charge a battery, and then we actually run on battery energy. It's the battery that runs our body, and just like your lead battery in your car, okay. It's quite toxic if it's not controlled properly. So the first core aspect is this energy. We breathe in oxygen. So we have a mouth and we have lungs and we breathe in molecular oxygen and we use that molecular oxygen to, to same way that the oxygen in your car, you, we use it to burn hydrocarbons and we eat fuel. We eat carbohydrates and fats and proteins and we, we burn those into carbon dioxide. So our lungs are, are gas exchangers. We breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. And that oxygen gets converted or neutralized to water in the energy process, and then we pee out the water. Okay, and so we're, we're that fundamental. And But that process generates high energy electrons. So we, we're basically returning the, elect, the electromagnetic energy from the sun back, okay, because plants absorb this electromagnetic energy, and then we then release it backwards. So when we don't do that properly, the mitochondria of our cells, we get oxidative stress, and these electrons leak out. And so, and one of the consequences of oxidative stress, ultimately is inflammation. So inflammation comes from oxidative stress, not the other way around. And so one is your energy generation. And the second thing is your lipid membranes. The human body is built of lipid membranes. That's what, why we're not soup in a, in a bowl of uh, being swirled around. What gives us physical structure. We have trillions of cells, and each of these cells are defined by their three-dimensional structure. And what puts the walls together are these lipid membranes your proteins of your body are embedded in a membrane and you everything lives in lipids in the human body there's a little bit of stuff in between into the circulatory system and so that's the operating environment so you can imagine the difference between you know walking outside on dry ground versus walking outside in the mud okay when you have to walk in the mud you can't move properly Okay, and so that's how we live in our world. The difference between walking on solid ground and walking on mud changes how we walk, changes how our legs work, changes how fast we can do things, changes what we do, changes whether. And so when you change your membranes, if you lose plasmalogens, all of a sudden your membranes become like walking in mud. Nothing works properly. And so and that's where it fits with the APOE4 genotype. It's These are simple, basic constructs. And so obviously there's more than just plasmalogens because you can have other deficiencies. And so, but plasmalogens are really a critical thing. So low plasmalogens are bad. High plasmalogens, like, so you want to, and so it's a, it's a triage perspective. You want to make sure you identify the most critical component first, fix it, and then you move to the next one, and then you fix that, and you move to the next one. So all of the you know listeners who are gardeners, okay, the first thing you do is you when you want to feed a plant, you give them nitrogen and water. Okay, you don't worry about your fungicide or a micronutrient. Like it makes no difference. You know you're not going to put you know sulfur on a plant that has no water. Like you have to get the water done first. Okay, and you have to get the, the nitrogen fertilizer second, and then as you get the as you get the most important components working then you can get more and more fancy a little later on then ultimately when you get to really really optimization now you're dealing with micronutrients so i have enough copper in my soil and and this and that and so but it, it makes no sense to focus on these minor esoteric 
issues until you deal with the core issues first. And then that's how it's you plasmalogen levels. They are plasmalogen is one core thing. If you don't have if you don't have sufficient plasmalogen levels, you're really wasting your time on a whole bunch of other things. If you don't have proper mitochondrial utilization, you're really wasting your time. Um, you're you're you know you're fixing windshield wipers on a car that has no oil. Like it's not going to help you drive any farther. Um, it's, it's it's just. I love your analogies. <laughs> that is so good. No, I mean that's a very hopeful answer. So yes, it really is that simple. We can replenish our plasmalogen levels, and we're going to talk about how to do that a little bit later. In the book, you emphasize the importance of identifying and addressing the APOE4 mechanism um, that increases our risk. And you say that's an impaired cholesterol transport system. The antidote you suggest is to rebalance the cholesterol transport weakness through high levels of plasmalogens. So can you explain to us, since we're an APOE4 audience, how that works? Yeah, and I really put some time to for the E4 community because it is such a confusing world out there. And so this definitive lecture series that I'm launching, and you guys will have links to it. um, The first lecture I'll release is the one on APOE4. And in the book, there's actually three chapters specifically um, dedicated to the E4 scenario. And it's easy to get caught up in the noise about APOE4. And this is a kind of situation where, just as I mentioned with plasmalogens, okay, you have to identify what is it about E4 and E3 and E2 that changes your risk profile. And so, first of all, everyone with an E4 genotype should understand that the E4 genotype itself has no increased risk of mortality in the nature of the genotype difference. So there's no reason for an E4 carrier to live any less long than someone with an E2 or an E3, okay? And so the question is, the same thing with these genetically modified genetic diseases, like even people with breast cancer with with a BRCA gene, okay? BRCA does not change your mortality risk. It just changes your disease risk. It's the disease that provides the mortality. And so we've done this very extensively, and I go through that in the book, showing that... um, So APOE4, the consequence of an E4 genotype, Mm -hmm. the the most proximate issue is the accumulation of amyloid, okay? So E4 carriers will accumulate more amyloid than non-E4 carriers. E2 carriers will accumulate less amyloid than E3. It's a dose-dependent effect. So E2 is low, E3 is normal or medium, and it's like the it's like the three bears scenario here, and the and the E four um, accumulates more amyloid. So if you the if you know the amyloid level of an individual, their genotype is irrelevant. Okay, so so when you so it's it's your risk of of accumulating amyloid. And then amyloid, you have to ask the question: well, What's about amyloid? Why do we have amyloid? Amyloid, there's a mechanism for amyloid, um, but it's a biomarker of brain reduce brain health and it's all related to cholesterol transport so the apoe4 genotype so just for people to realize okay so your body transports cholesterol on lipoproteins okay so cholesterol is a big piece of fat that doesn't want to be soluble in water so how do you transport it because you have to your body is made of water and your blood supply is made of water and the intracellular space is all water so how does a body move pieces of fat 
Okay. It's like having a, a droplet of oil in your water and saying, how do I transport that through pipes and not have it all stick on the pipes, and not get to where it's going. And how the body does that is it makes it, it sticks it to highly water soluble proteins called lipoproteins. And these lipoproteins are little um, transporters. And so the fat will stick to these highly soluble ones and will carry them around to where they have to go. ApoE is a gene that codes for one of those proteins, the apolipoprotein type E. Now, it's a very minor protein in your periphery. We've known about it for many, many years. We've known about it since the 70s. Lots of right, lots of literature and research on it. Um, the genotype has been known for many, many, many years. But it wasn't until 1993 that it was published that people with familial Alzheimer's disease, so people that have Alzheimer's in their family history, those people had... 50% of those people had an E4 genotype, whereas the regular distribution was only 17, 18%. So in the United States, about 25% of the population will have one or two E4 alleles. Around 60, 65% will have two E3s, and about 10% contain, 10 to 15 have the one E2 allele. And they're, so these are the three main groups of individuals. And so that's what really set a firestorm up. So, whoa, you know, we have this high prevalence of Alzheimer's disease in people with an E4 genotype. What's causing that? Why is that? And so now you have to start looking through that in greater detail. So in the in your periphery, you have you typically LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol. LDL is what transports. So I'm going to start from the, take a few minutes here to understand ApoE4. You're in a I'm going to, the E4 lecture goes through this in greater detail and, and shows you all the literature references for you to know what this is all about. So when you, if you're an E4 carrier and you get your blood test done, you'll notice typically you'll have higher levels of LDL versus a normal person. And if you have an E2 genotype, you'll have lower levels of cholesterol. That is not bad. That is completely irrelevant to your health. Okay. So the, and I'll tell you why. And the reason for it isn't about your circulating E4 levels. You have less than 5% of the lipoproteins of your body are um, periphery is, is, is the ApoE gene. Virtually none of it is, exists in your LDL particles. It's mostly called the apolipoprotein B is your LDL. And apolipoprotein A is your HDL. Now, what makes ApoE important is a little bit, you have a little bit in your HDL particles, like small percentages, a little bit in very low density and a little bit in your chylum microns. But what makes ApoE so unique and interesting is that whereas it's only like 5% of the lipoprotein in your periphery, in your lungs, in your liver, in your blood supply, it's 99%, okay? Like it is the only lipoprotein that your brain makes. And your brain has an entirely separate cholesterol regulation system. It's in a different universe. None of the cholesterol from your liver and your blood supply gets to the brain. Your brain makes all its own cholesterol. It does all of its own transportation of cholesterol. And so in the periphery, we have a remote interstate system called your circulatory system, your blood, you know, your veins and your arteries, and that distributes material all around your body. And most of that, and your liver makes most of your cholesterol and distributes it on your LDL particles. And then your cells will absorb the cholesterol that they need from that blood supply. And so when you get a blood test, looking at your total cholesterol and low LDL and HDL, you're measuring that, you're measuring your blood supply. Then every single cell of your body can make its own cholesterol. 
and it will redistribute it. It balances. If, it, if, it, if it's making a lot, then it doesn't need very much from the blood supply. If it's hungry, it pulls more in from the blood supply. And so you redistribute it. So it balances it out. So it gets, it stays exactly what it wants. Okay. And so the reason why H, the APOE4 carriers have higher levels of LDL cholesterol is that they're cholesterol conservers, which means your cholesterol efflux is slower. So when you're, when you're, so it's, it's like, um, imagine your house is part, has solar panels on electrical grid. Okay. The electrical grid coming from the power company is the LDL circulatory system. The electrical grid in your house being powered by your solar panels, that's your individual cell. And if you're an APOE4 carrier, you're very energy efficient. Your house um, doesn't require much energy from the grid. Okay. And so what it does is it, it uses, it's, it, it conserves energy very well. And so it, it, it absorbs less energy from the grid. Same thing for your cells in your body. So an HDL carrier doesn't, or an APOE4 carrier, their cholesterol efflux is lower. So they, they, they leak less cholesterol. They're, they're, they're cholesterol conservers. And since they conserve cholesterol, they don't require as much cholesterol from the blood supply. And so LDL levels will elevate because the cellular demand of cholesterol of an E4 carrier is less than an E3 carrier. E2 carriers are the opposite. They can't hold their cholesterol. This is like a person who just can't, money burns a hole in their pocket. They can't save money. And so they're always out of money. So they're always asking their parents for money. So their money, their parents are always broke. And so the, so E2 carriers are effluxing cholesterol fast. So they're always absorbing cholesterol from the blood supply, which makes their LDL levels low. So the reason why the E4, E3, E2 relationship with blood cholesterol levels is, is that way is because E4 carriers have a lower rate of cholesterol efflux. So they hold cholesterol better. They hold cholesterol better in the periphery, but what about in the brain? Now that's where it gets interesting. So they do the same thing in the brain, but the brain is very, very different. So now in terms of your peripheral system, you're dealing with this interstate system of large arteries and large freeway systems. The brain is like Chinatown. It's a whole bunch of little streets back and forth. Um, There's no real circulatory system. There's a bit of a, kind of a tidal system with the cerebral spinal fluid. So everything in the brain is local. Now, what makes APOE such a unique molecule is that it has equal LDL and HDL qualities. So it can act as an LDL, so it can actually deliver cholesterol, and it can act as HDL for exporting cholesterol. So your brain uses APOE for both LDL and HDL functions. And in the brain, instead of your liver making cholesterol, your astrocytes make cholesterol and your, your neurons and everything else absorb cholesterol. So it's all about cholesterol efflux. And so how the brain uses one single protein to do all of this is it has different transporters. Um, so you have uh, the, the LDL transporter, which is very generic, is how cholesterol gets absorbed into a cell. But the way cholesterol gets out of a cell, there are three main transporters called, they're called uh, ATP binding consets. So it's, uh, so ABCA1 is one, and then there's a G1 and a G4. So there's three separate transport proteins that 
control the efflux. And these transport proteins are on different ones. Some are on neurons, some are on astrocytes, some are on, and they work in conjunction with each other. So ApoE4, okay, the ApoE genotype is involved in the efflux from one of those three called the ABCA1. And it's totally genotype dependent. So what makes it, why you have uh, the different genotypes. So the ApoE genotyping is called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And there are two amino acids that are changed. And, and they change from either a cysteine, which is a sulfur-containing amino acid, to arginine, which is a very polar amino acid. Now, what's important about cysteine as being a sulfur amino acid is it, call, it, it creates what's called disulfide bridges. It can create dimers. It's like, um, it's like two magnets that can stick together. On a, like it's like a, like a screen door. It'll stick. Okay. ApoE4 carriers cannot do that. So their doors can't, they can't create dimers. E2, since, so the E2 carrier will have two cysteines, two sulfur, free sulfurs. E3 carriers will have one sulfur cysteine and one arginine. And E4 carriers will have two arginines, which means they have no cysteines at all. So E4 carriers cannot call, create dimers. And it's a dimerization of the E4 protein that modulates its cholesterol efflux capacity through A1. And it's a dose-dependent effect. Okay, it's it's and so the genotype effect. So it, so the difference between the genotypes is the ability for cholesterol to leave a cell through the A1 transporter, and that's that A1 transporter is in a certain part of the membrane, and it's in the it's in a lipid rich it's a phospholipid rich region. So the other system that modulates this A1 transporter. Okay, is an enzyme called ACAT, which is cholesterol, um, acetyl CoA cholesterol acyl transferase, whatever it is. It's it's what sterifies cholesterol for export, and that's um, used in the periphery as well. So what happens is typically that protein is controlled by plasmalogen levels and other things. But really, so if you increase acetyl cholesterol esterification, it increases transport. So you have two you have a basically you have a three-legged race with apoe on one side plasmalogens on the other side and the 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 a1 transporter in the middle and so if one is weak the other can compensate for it and so as we get more young when you have a lot sufficient plasmalogens e4 is a protective mechanism in many ways in our in our younger years um, when is when you're is when plas, it only becomes a risk factor later in life when your plasmalogen levels become depleted and then all of a sudden the counterbalance of the e4 on this abca1 transporter is is missing so it normally it loses its it's a uh, its, its support mechanism and so when that stops happening or it gets reduced then the levels of cholesterol in your membranes increase. And when that happens, uh, amyloid, the amyloid precursor protein um, is shifted from its normal process, which is the uh, formation of soluble APP and um, healthy process to amyloid beta 42, like the plaque. So that's why E4 carriers have very specific associations with amyloid. E2 will have less amyloid than E3s. 
E4s will have higher amyloid than E3s. It's a very dose-dependent effect, and it's 100% related to cholesterol efflux. Okay, nothing else matters. And so if, if, you, if an E4 carrier does not accumulate amyloid, that genotype is completely silent. It is like you're like anyone else. It makes no difference. And so as long as that part is changed, it makes no difference. So an E3 carrier that has other cholesterol problems, okay, and they have more amyloid than an E4 carrier, they're worse than an E4 or even E2 carriers. Like you can have, a, you can be an E2 carrier and have amyloid issues. And that's the issue. It just odds are, you know, all things being equal. And if you're ignorant as to your genotype and ignorant as to what controls that, then, you know, randomly speaking, more E4 carriers are going to have this cholesterol membrane problem. And so if you, so people that have, so E4 carriers that have high plasmalogens in their brain have normal amyloid levels. E4 carriers, you know, peripherally, if your blood plasmalogen levels are high, the E4 genotype is silenced. So you have no increased risk. And that was published um, about a year and a half ago now. So that's kind of, so all of it comes down to just that one thing. It is one protein, the ABCA1 protein. And it's related to the dimerization and it's related specifically to the SNP mutation in E4. And E4 carriers don't need to know anything more than that. And so in terms of cholesterol regulation, so your LDL and your blood, it makes no difference in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, in fact, you want to have, it's a, it's a measure of health. Um, the worst thing in this world is to have low cholesterol because it indicates that your cells are unhealthy. And um, because if your cells are unhealthy, then they need cholesterol from the blood supply and it sucks cholesterol out. Or your liver is not making enough cholesterol. And so what happens with when this A1 protein doesn't work properly, it's the distribution because everything in the brain is a very localized environment. So the neurons share with each other. So if one neuron has a little extra cholesterol, a little extra phosphatidylcholine, it'll export it. Okay. It's like, it's like a, it's like a solar panel network. And so if, if one cell has enough, little more than it needs, it gets rid of it. And if another cell has a little more, it takes it. And so there's this redistribution power. But if you can't, if you can't redistribute, you can't optimize it. And that's what happens with with APOE4 carriers is that that redistribution um, is not as um, you don't have as much buffer or or reserve. Okay, so you're you're really dependent upon making sure that your pl your membrane plasmalgen levels are fine. Whereas an E2 carrier, they can be a bit more sloppy. They're they're you know they, you know it's like everyone else. It's like, it's like your friend that's skinny. They can eat anything. They don't have to care. And they have one person that you just you know you look at food and you put on weight. And so it's it's that's the same situation. So it's not different than anything else. So you're going to have these types of things in our world. It's actually very hopeful. So as an APOE4 homozygote myself, as long as my plasmalogen levels are high, my cholesterol efflux in my brain will be optimized and I will not be um, collecting amyloid beta in my brain. I mean, no. I'm going to keep everything moving. So, I mean, that's extraordinarily. Well, helpful. you've made it to this long in your life. Okay. <laughs> so clearly the E4 didn't kill you in the womb. Right. right? And so it's, you're, you're, you're functional. And so your body has the right appropriate compensation mechanisms. And so that's the other thing we have problem with, with, with science, with medicine and diseases, we get focused on these, these excesses. But, uh, and we think of, you know, we want, we get, we get an accumulation of this, or we get some toxic thing, 
But that's not how health works. 100% of all human disease is caused by deficiency, period. Okay, there's no such thing as an excess causing a disease, only deficiencies. Excesses come from deficiencies. So what happens is you have a deficient transport of A1. That creates the excess of cholesterol, okay? That's for me to understand. So I'm thinking about a type 2 diabetic who's uh, taking in an excess of glucose. Isn't that causing disease? Well, no, actually, because they have a they have an impaired ability. It's, it's it's insulin insensitivity. So the reason why they have elevated blood glucose is not because they have more glucose, is because they're they have a deficiency in cholesterol in glucose regulation. It's the deficiency that causes the okay. excess. Okay. Okay. So the world is very stingy. Okay. Biochemistry is you know it doesn't waste anything. Okay, you don't see excess and no excess is ever created in this world just freely. Okay, if you have excess, it's because it's got no place else to go. Um, and so that's kind of how it, it works. So at some point, you have a, like if you have a, a micronutrient deficiency, if you have, say, you're anemic, right? So you have low levels of iron and that, so you can't transport oxygen properly, blah, blah, blah. Then that'll create oxidative stress. So the elevation, all of the elevations that we have and all these high levels of things that we say, oh, that there's toxic levels, all those toxic levels of anything come from the, the, the root cause of those are always going to be a deficiency of some system um, that, that can no longer handle that, that load. And then you get an accumulation of it. Okay. I'm going to go back to cholesterol Sorry. because I think a lot of people in our community are uber focused on their cholesterol and they're going to find something that you say in the book, very encouraging. And you hinted towards it um, in our discussion. So in terms of all cause mortality, you're seeing cholesterol in the 220 to 240 range as being the healthiest. Yeah. Is so that- 240, 250 is where you want to be. Um, period. Wow. And that's, and that's not me saying that. That's not like 164 country epidemiology data, 12 million people in Korea. Like these are huge, huge studies that the, the, the optimal blood cholesterol level for longevity, okay, lowest rates of all-cause mortality occur in individuals with cholesterol levels in the 240 range, 220 to 260, you know, in that range, period. And... As soon as your cholesterol levels start getting below 200, all cause mortality starts going up quite dramatically. So, and it's an indicator of reduced health. This fits beautifully with your stingy analysis. Well, yeah, it's cholesterol is really critically important to the human body. It's, you know, we want to regulate it, obviously. Too much in the wrong place is not good. So, for instance, we talked about too much cholesterol in the membrane. Um, But if typically people have low levels of cholesterol in their blood, it indicates something is not right. Either they have a liver problem and that they can't make enough cholesterol. Often it's a phosphatidylcholine deficiency that's causing it, okay? And, or they have cellular issues. So if you're taking a statin, for example, what a statin does, it basically is a mitochondrial toxin or it, it, it basically forces, it starves your cell. It basically says, it, it turns off your own, solar panels so that the only energy you can get is from the blood supply. And so it forces all your cells, your body to to get their cholesterol from the blood supply. And so since the cells can't make their own cholesterol, they're forced to get it from the blood supply. And that 
basically lowers blood cholesterol levels. And so where statins got their 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 main advantage or their main purpose is in cardiovascular disease and oxidized LDL and oxidized lipids um, have associations with atherosclerosis and, and heart disease. And this theory with statins is if I lower cholesterol levels, I'll lower the, or lower LDL levels, I'll lower the pool of peptide of proteins that can become oxidized. And that's logical and it's true. So the power of the, the clinical data on statins is that if you have underlying oxidative stress, so if you have high C-reactive protein levels and high LDL, then you're at increased risk. But if you have, if your oxidative stress markers are low, you can have cholesterol at 300 and it's not going to hurt you. So, wow, that's very, very it, encouraging. It's, it's yeah. like, cholesterol is not a toxic molecule. It's benign. It has no, it, it, it's your cells all need it. And so it itself has no toxicity. The, it, so if it gets oxidized, then it becomes an inflammatory mediator and it creates your foamy macrophages and your atherosclerotic plaques and so on and so forth. So really what the, the issue really is oxidative stress is keeping your C-reactive protein levels down and malandialdehyde levels. And that was the other critical outcome of the clinical trial is that people that take plasmalogens, they have very low levels of oxidative stress. We see that's so exciting. Very powerful. Before I get to the uh, clinical trial results that you recently presented, I want to kind of tie this in a neat bow so that our listeners know, I mean, we've talked about this uh, plasmalogen levels and that we can increase levels. I want to tell them how to do it. So you've created this prodrome scan that can be very helpful in terms of not only learning your plasmalogen levels, but learning other things as well. Yeah. So Prodome Scan is kind of the, the beginner's kit of your own personalized biochemistry. Okay. It's kind of, it, it, it identifies the real key issues of biochemical health that you want done first. And there, and it's really basic stuff. It looks complicated if it's the first time you've ever seen something like it, but it really, we're dealing with all the basics of human biochemical health. And it's organized into two pages. It's 14 sections. One section deals with the phospholipids of the body. Part of that is the plasmalogens. Make sure you have appropriate plasmalogens. The other one is phosphatidylcholines. People talk about lethicin. It's another major issue in our society that people, especially uh, vegetarians, um, they don't get enough fat good fat because um but choline deficiencies are really bad that's one of the reasons you have low cholesterol it causes liver disease pancreatic cancer and so on it's one of those things that we don't measure enough of so you don't want to become choline deficient and it also is linked to your your homocysteine system so we looked at we look at the memory lipids look at phosphatidylcholines and ethanolamines so very the stuff that makes up all the membranes of your body and then we look at your fatty acid um, ratios in the lipids. Okay. So people all hear, everyone knows about omega threes and omega sixes and omega nines and your saturated fats. And so the same part of your cell that makes plasmalogens makes your own DHA, which is your long chain omega three. And so you want to make sure that your cells have sufficient DHA or actually high levels of DHA relative to arachidonic acid, which is your omega six version. And so we measure those ratios in the membrane lipids so that we have that your, your cells are preloaded for 
lower inflammation because you're going to get inflammation all like that's the natural course of life. And what the point point of inflammation is that you want that inflammation to stay localized and then disappear once it's done its job. The problem with inflammation we have is with all the autoimmune diseases that people are experiencing is that inflammation doesn't stay localized to that site of inflammation anymore and it grows. Part of that is making sure that your DHA to arachidonic acid profiles are right. It's also very important for cancers, especially breast cancer. Um, um, the DHA to arachidonic acid levels um, are very important for reducing breast cancer risk. Wow. And um, and cardiovascular risk and things like that. And so then quickly, quickly check iron levels. Um, people don't pay attention. And also, if you're iron deficient, then you quite often become deficient in other key metals. Uh, we talk, we think about iron for for um, oxygen transport, but all the cells of your mitochondria need iron. And also when you get inflammation. So most of the mortality in the hospitals caused by COVID are from people that have a pre-existing iron deficiency. And so if you if you if you have an iron deficiency before you get inflamed, so every time a cell is made, like when you get inflammation, your body is making a whole bunch of new cells. In the brain, it's called microglia, and the blood is your macrophages and T cells and all this kind of funny words that people tell you about. But those are brand new cells. Those are cells that are created from scratch that did not exist. And every cell that your body makes, it's like it has to have, it has to get bakers. It has to have materials. And one of the all the cells, all those cells require mitochondria and proxosomes and things. Those cells need iron. Mitochondria need iron. And so when you have inflammation, it starts sucking iron out of your reserves because all those new cells require iron. And if your inflammatory cells need iron it takes it away from your other cells. So if you have a pre-existing iron deficiency, it exasperates any kind of anemic reaction. So you wanna make sure we don't become iron deficient. And then other little things like selenium and copper, I don't measure those things, but um, you can get more fancy tests for that, but you don't wanna become deficient in those things. I check gastrointestinal health, like your GI health. There's some biomarkers there that um, been studied for colon pancreatic cancers extensively. So those are very potent anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer molecules. Again, very simple summary of that. And then we get into the key issues of your body. We look at the methyltransferase system. This is one system people think about your B vitamins, like when you talk about B12 and B6 and methylated folate that most people that are health conscious are taking. The reason you're doing that is to make sure you have methyltransferase. So amyloid formation in the brain is also methyltransferase dependent, not just membrane. The other the other component that, that that forms that causes abnormal amyloid is um, methyltransferase deficiency, which is caused by homocysteine type of thing. Same thing, phosphorylated tau, so neurofibrillary tangles in the brain. Those are completely driven by methyltransferase issues in the brain. So I have so the definitive lecture series goes through each of these things in detail. So you can actually re- reduce your methyl your tau tangle formation. And I explain how tau works in the brain. So phosphorylated tau. But so methyltransferase, measure homocysteine, but we also measure your sphingomyelin and ceramide ratios, other things that are, because today's day and age, when we take vitamins, sometimes you can trick your blood test. You can look, you can actually modify a number and not the reason why that biomarker was a good biomarker. Okay. Now check mitochondrial health um, very quickly to make sure that your mitochondria are tuned up. And those are, these are all easily fixable. Like, so if you, your mitochondria aren't working properly, they leak out acetyl-CoA and you can easily take carnitine to fix that type of thing and other supplements. Check your mito- your paroxysomal function, which is what where your plasmalogens are made and where your DHA is made and 
It also require it helps regulate your fasting triglyceride levels. Double check your, you know, everyone should have fasting triglyceride under 100. If you have, if your fasting triglycerides are over 100, something's not right. Okay, so, and that's all fixable. Check your cholesterol levels. Make sure you're not cholesterol deficient. Check your HDL levels. And then I check a couple um, other markers that people, they're really old school markers, your creatinine levels, for example, people think of creatinine for um, kidney disease. But actually when you get older, the biggest issue we have is people with low creatinine because lower, if you get low creatinine, it shows that you're in the muscle wasting space and muscle wasting and sarcopenia is a very, very critical issue as we get older and people don't pay attention to it. And it's also fixable. And actually the clinical trial, one of the actually more powerful than even the cognitive changes in our clinical trial was the was sarcopenia and muscle wasting improvements? Wow. So we got sit stand improvements, dramatic improvements in muscularity only in four months. And then also check uric acid levels. So uric acid levels, people think about uric acid for gout, but low levels also indicate central nervous system inflammation and other diseases. So these, are, so it's a it's a snapshot, and what it does is it gets it's kind of hits all of the main areas very quickly, and then from that. Like if you, you know, we have certified doctors that can understand it much more quickly, but individuals can understand it too. If they take the time, I have all that educational material on on the website, but then you can identify what's going on. So for instance, if someone, if you get a blood cholesterol level and your blood cholesterol is 150 for some reason, you go, wow, why is my cholesterol so low? And you look up the chart and say, well, my phosphatidylcholine levels are at the 20th percentile. Well, that's the reason. Right. (laughs) Right. And so now I can fix that. I can just take lethacin supplementation, bring my choline levels up. I can fix my cholesterol levels. And if my fasting triglycerides are too high, then I can fix that too. I increase my intermittent fasting level. Um, the proteome neuro will improve paroxysmal function, moderate re- exercise resistance training. Um, see, the other thing too is when we get older, see your body, I'm sorry, I'm babbling all over the place, but see your body has certain, most of the world works in a binary, like your iPhone, for example, if you have an iPhone or a Blackberry or whatever you guys use nowadays and Samsung, you use it all day long, right? And it, it, it expends energy. And then you put it on the charger overnight so that you have to use it again. Okay. Your car uses energy. And then you got to fill up a tank. Your, your body does that every day. It switches from the fed state to the fasting state. Okay. During the day, you're typically in the fed state. You're up active, moving around. Okay. And then at night you go on the recharge and that's when you get into the fasting state. And it's the fasting state that is when you build, it's when you become lipogenic. Okay. So in the, during the day, you kind of, your body runs on glycolysis. We take glucose and sugar and and everything, same molecules in acetylcholine, and that generates the energy for our daily activity. But our rebuilding processes are basically shut down during the day. At nighttime, your body switches from glycolysis to lipolysis, which means it breaks down fatty acids from your fat cells. This is when we're in ketosis at night. Right. And that's the natural way for your body to get into ketosis is caloric restriction. Okay, so typically at night, you have, you're not eating. So eventually you become into uh, liposis and that's your keto. And that's when your, your fat cells become your stomach during the day, your fat, your stomach digests food for energy during night, your fat cells digest food for energy. And that's when you, and that's when you're building, that's when you make your steroid hormones. That's when you make your membranes. That's when you rebuild all the stuff, the dumb stuff you did during the day and you fix it all. And so 
when we get older, we don't consume as much energy during the day as we did when we we're younger. So it takes longer for our bodies to get into that fasting state. And so, and we, we have a problem, especially late night snacking and those kind of things are really, really not healthy because it prevents your body from getting into that fasting state. And that's when the rebuilding processes occur. And so you can do keto, but you should do both. Like you should, most people should, your body is designed to to switch back and forth a bit. In our community, most of us do keto through fasting exercise. I mean, we know um, healthy ways of getting into it as well as having a low carb diet. Um, So I am convinced this prodrome scan is fundamental. Everybody should get one, figure out what your plasmalogens are, get a snapshot of your health. I've got two kits sitting in my kitchen, so I can't wait to do it. We're going to link to how to get the prodrome scan in our show notes, but I want to get to the most, well, not the most important thing. The second most important thing you've created a plasmalogen precursor supplement that can essentially replenish your plasmalogen levels. So we've identified that Alzheimer's is a deficiency of plasmalogen. Tell us how we can increase our plasmalogen levels. Yeah. So this is really exciting. Okay. So we've known about plasmalogens for about a hundred years now. Okay. And we know they're obligate to human life. So if you're born with a genetic mutation that stops you from making plasmalogens, either you will die in the womb or you will basically die before your 10th birthday or earlier. Okay. So these are very severe consequences of plasmalogen deficiencies. And so we've known about that for a long, long time. Your body has lots of plasmalogens, but he, but the body has different plasmalogens for different reasons. So diseases like multiple sclerosis and ALS, those are white matter diseases. And the plasmalogen that's in your white matter, which is the protective. So it's the, it's the plastic coating around your copper wire, if you will. It's very important very um, impervious to oxidative stress. That is plasmalogens containing an omega-9, like oleic acid from olive oil, but it has a plasmalogen backbone. So we have a product called Prodome Glia, and that delivers 100% omega-9 plasmalogens. And it's designed- oh, I was going to ask you that. So how does someone know which supplement to buy? Is it based on the result of their prodrome scan? Because I noticed you have multiple. A little bit, but really it's, it's um, the simplest way is saying prodrome neuro is for performance. So prodrome neuro has the omega-3 DHA in it. And that's critical for your neuromuscular junction, for muscularity, and for your cholinergic neurons in the brain. So the same neuron that handles cognition in the brain is a neuron that handles your muscular activity of the neuromuscular junction called acetylcholine neuron. So DHA plasmalogens are the ones that the E4 carriers need because it's the DHA plasmalogens that modulate the um, the cholesterol efflux. They're also the ones that improve cognition in the synaptic cleft of neurotransmission, improve muscularity. Are the so E3? So the omega-3 DHA is a performance enhancing plasmalogen. The E, the um, omega-9 oleic acid is for protection. It, and it's for mostly for younger people for autism, multiple sclerosis, concussion, um, s- stroke, cerebral vascular, th- those things. So you can use both. The, the molecules will share each other. So as we get older, we typically need more than DHA. But we can, you can use both. Um, they're both extremely healthy for you for different reasons. The trick, the problem with plasmalogens is that the very last step in their manufacture creates what's called a vinyl ether bond. 
And this is what gives it its special powers because it's, it's packing power in the white matter protective sheath, and it gives it its membrane fusion, neurotransmitter release, membrane modulation power for performance. And it's also why it's very potent antioxidant. It neutralizes peroxides. It reacts, physically reacts, or chemically reacts with peroxides to neutralize them. That process makes that molecule very sensitive to exposure and acidic environments. So when you eat an animal product, okay, that has plasmalogens in it, I have a nice juicy steak or whatever that has plasmalogens in it. When it hits the stomach acids, those plasmalogens break down. So dietary sources of plasmalogens are very, very minimal compared to what we need. So we get virtually insignificant levels from our diet versus how much we have. So the trick for chemistry, because I'm a chemist, is to design a molecule that can survive the stomach acids. And the precursors, so these are natural precursors. Um, they're found, they've been around forever, like in shark liver oil. And it's, they're called alkyl acyl glycerols, if you ever looked that stuff up. The problem with the natural sources of alkyl acyl glycerols is that you can't get them without squalene and other things. And you can't target the specific neurons and you can't get purified versions. And so what I've designed is purified alkyl acyl glycerols, two types, 100% omega Three, which is the neuro, the proteome neuro, the DHA, everything's 100% vegan, no risk of any type of environmental contaminants in any of our products. The DHA we get is from an algae source, and we take the free DHA like when you get when you take your when you take triglycerides for like your fish oil or algae oils, it comes in a triglyceride form, not a, a plasmalogen form. So we take those, we actually digest it like making soap. We make the free fatty acid form. And then we put that on a plasmalogen backbone. So it's hundred percent pure plasmalogen molecule and your body needs lots of it. So the, the regular small dose is 900 milligrams. Okay. So if you take a look at these natural sources that have a few milligrams, like your body has grams of it and like, you know, lots of plasmalogen. So you need to make sure you're taking enough of it to make an effect. So I designed plasmalogen precursors that are 100% natural. They, they, they're part of the natural human biochemistry. And so not only does the, the alkyl glycerol get absorbed in your blood from your stomach, it elevates your overall blood plasmalogen levels, but it's designed to go into each of the cells of the body as a precursor. So not so this, this whole idea of the power grid versus your cell, your, your own capability. So it does two things. It, it, it increases the entire grid side, the, of plasmalogens, but every day you take the plasmalogen supplement, it pulses itself into your neurons. Okay. And it actually goes right into the, every single cell of your body and lets that cell make the final two steps. So they don't even need to get plasmalogens from the blood supply anymore. And that was, was interesting in the clinical trial is that we didn't we didn't we didn't segregate anyone for their low their baseline plasmalogen levels, and so we had the same clinical effect in people that had high plasmalogens at baseline versus people that had low plasmalogens. So we had the so, same number. Yeah, let me ask a, a yeah. question. So did That's you how it works. identify so, plasmalogen levels for the clinical trial? Uh, did you get base baseline? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So it was a very controlled. Okay. Okay. So trial. 
Yeah, let me kind of back up for a quick second. So Dr. Goodnow just presented at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, and this is not published anywhere, and you revealed the results of your clinical trial, and that's what you're talking about now. So this is really exciting. Yes. So yeah, so that's what we presented last work last week in Denver. This was a clinical trial that was actually um, approved and financed by the Alzheimer's Association. So the Alzheimer's Association themselves actually paid for me to do this trial. Very encouraging. Right. So this this was funded by the Alzheimer's Association, and we're, we're, we did it in collaboration with the group in Santa Monica, Dr. Sheldon Jordan's group. Uh, really powerful neurologist there. And um, we did a very simple, straightforward, it's open label, nothing fancy. The goal here was to, the, the primary goal was pharmacokinetic. We wanted to know how much plasmalgen precursor we needed. What was the effect of adding plasmalgens to blood levels? And so we had a real hodgepodge of individuals. We had 22 people. We had people as young as every single person had cognitive impairment. They had a clinical dementia rating score of either 0.5 one or two. So we had 14 people that had mild cog- mild cognitive impairment, um, basically early stage Alzheimer's. We had four people that had uh, mild to moderate, a CDR one. So CDR stands for the clinical dementia, dementia rating scale. Right. And there's four scales on that scale. 0.5 is basically mild or um, mild cognitive impairment. Then one is again, kind of moderate. And then two is kind of semi-severe and then three is very severe. And so we had four people with a CDR of one and four people with a CDR of two. So everyone had cognitive impairment. Okay, so there was no controls in that regard. Um, the, we did no blood testing prior. We did a baseline, but we did not select patients. We had some people as young as 37. We had wow. some people with more of a Lewy body disease. Most people had Alzheimer's related dementia because dementia comes in many different flavors. Like we have vascular dementias, we have Alzheimer's dementias, we have functional temporal lobe dementias, we have Lewy body dementias. So dementia is reduced cognitive functioning, but there are different types of cognition. And we did no selection. So this is a complete, you know, random group of people. Sure. So we had a good feeling of what was going to go on. And so we've got blood baseline levels, cognition at baseline, looked at their mobility. We used a sit stand. So it's called a 30 second sit stand. So basically you, you, you sit on a chair and the person will time you for 30 seconds and ask you to stand up and sit down as many times as you can um, in 30 seconds. So it's a measure of mobility and muscle strength. And it's a good biomarker of sarcopenia in, as we get older. So that was done. And that was done every month. So we had baseline. So for the first month, people take what took one mil per day of the prodrome neuro supplement. So basically the equivalent of one bottle lasting one month. Sure. And then the next month, so at the end of the first month, they came in, got cognitive testing again, got mobility testing, got blood samples drawn. And then they went home with, with uh, two bottles of prodrome neuro. So now they took double the dose, two mils per day. So one bottle would last two weeks. Okay. Oh. And then we did that for two months. So we did that for a month two. And at the end of, end of the second month, they came home, came in, we did blood testing, mobility testing, cognitive testing. Then they went out again with another um, two meals per day. Then the, the following month after that, we gave them four bottles of neuro. So they took one bottle of neuro every week. Okay. Oh. So four meals per day. Okay. And that's actually the dose that we, on the animal trials for complete neuroprotection for okay. neurodegeneration and, and so on. And we have a number of people that are on the high dose. 
that have really high, you know, really dramatic improvements in Parkinson's, really dramatic improvements in Alzheimer's disease. Um, we've had people with a CDR of three are down to a one now since they've been on high doses of the plasmalogens. Pretty crazy stuff. Wow. So, so then, then they did it last month, they did a washout phase for a month and then we took their blood test at the end and then all that stuff. So that's all presented. And what we found is that 75%, so the four people that had a, a CDR of two, which is the most severe of the people in this trial, four of the three of those four people improved by more than an entire CDR score within the three four month period. They went from a two to a one or a two to even a 0.5 um, in that period of time. So dramatic improvements. Um, half of the people with a CDR of one improved. Remember, Alzheimer's is a disease that you're not supposed to improve from. Okay. It, like when, you do a clinical, when you do a cl clinical trial, what you're doing is you're trying to ask the question, can I reduce the rate of decline? No one really talks about improving Improvement. health. Absolutely. Right? You know, I know Dale Bredesen talks about improving. So he's right. one of the other people out there that are saying, you know what, we, we don't have to be satisfied with just reducing right. our rate of decline. We can actually get better. And this is the same thing. We can actually get better um, on this thing. And so, and then the mobility, so we had significant cognitive improvement in individuals um, that wasn't, you know, we, we weren't, we we measuring it, but that wasn't an outcome primary, primarily. The other thing that was important is the mobility improvements were quite dramatic. Um, like four, five increased sit stand within like, so these are, so the sit stand improvement was actually even more robust than the cognitive improvement in the individuals. Wow. So muscularity, and I can tell you from my own personal experience, it is definitely um, uh, muscle enhancing. It improves your, your, your exercise capabilities and things. Um, I've wow. certainly noticed that in my well, life. Let me ask you this. So at, at, at what dose did you see the most improvement when they got to the four mil? Um, about two mils is probably where most people will be. And um, for some people with severe, the, the four mil helped. But I think two mils per day is going to be, if you have, remember, these are people that now we don't need a blood test. We know for a fact that they already have cognitive impairment. So you got to remember the blood test is designed you know, not to diagnose a disease, it's to understand your biochemical health, right? If you have a neurological disease, if you have symptomology, then biochemically, we, you know, you want to supplement in an appropriate way for that particular disorder, regardless of the blood test. The blood test is there to find out, is to make sure that there's nothing hiding, there's no boogeyman under the bed that you don't know about. Okay, that's what the bottom line is. And then you fix those things. But once you have... That's you know, actually really encouraging because, you know, that's maybe a step some people could skip. If budget is tight, skip the prodrome scan and go directly to the supplement. Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to create a breaking Alzheimer's, um, basically a package that'll be coming out later. Because <laughs> the other thing with problem with Alzheimer's and supplementation is it becomes pretty complicated. Like it's hard for us to send you know, 10 bottles of supplements out to people, um, right. For them. And so, um, so we'll, we'll be packaging things in a much better way. So there is, there'll be a, a design supplement package, biochemical engineering package, basically for people that can just kind of do that. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I just want to ask. So when you went to the washout period, did these folks lose the gains that they had incurred? Uh, the plasmalgen levels came down, 
Okay. The gains actually stayed for most people, but we've had a couple people within two weeks, they started realizing that it came down and this was one of the more severe ones. And so they wouldn't even complete the trial. They said, we're, I'm, we're, we're, we're upping their dose again. Good. Absolutely. Okay. And so, yeah, so it's, um, it's going to be individual dependent for sure. Okay. But clearly symptomatically the, um, the plasmalogens have an actual physiological effect in improving cognition. And anyone who takes a supplement will typically experience that. Like you'll feel a sense of awareness a little bit sure. with Something's it. Um, different. Something's kind different. Of, it's kind so, of an awakening. What understanding is that people need to take the supplement for life, essentially. Pretty much. Yes. Okay. You know, okay. you can, you can, it's kind of like a vitamin D story in a sense sure. that, you know, if you, if you're very careful, you get out in the sun, you get these things, you can have natural vitamin D levels where you want them to be. Plasmalogens are the same way. Like you can, there's a lot of lifestyle that improves it. So yeah. like the fasting exercise, these things all improve yeah. about how, but getting to this mass balance equation in your favor, because the other thing you remember you're, when you get into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and nineties, you're not dealing with what happened last year. You're dealing with what's happened for 30 years. Yeah. Right. And so you can't fix 30 years of decline in two weeks. And so, um, if, so if you want to start pushing the tide backwards, we need to create the biochemical reserve. And then that'll take a while to come back. It's like a game of musical chairs. Like you can, like we, we want to, we want to have all of our players surrounding the, the ring of chairs so that whenever someone gets out of a chair, it's our guy going into the chair. And so that's creating that biochemical reserve capacity is that you have excess plasmalogens available because the brain has a slow rate of turnover. Okay. For, for us to re restore neuronal membrane structure, um, it takes time. It just physically time. Like someone has to get out of the chair of the musical chairs before I can put someone else in. And so it's not like your membranes are sitting there with a bunch of holes in it, right? They're, but they just don't have all the right stuff. And so when we want to replace and restore membrane structure, um, we need to do it in that kind of format. And so, yeah, so it's going to be something that you're going to want to have most of your life for preventative medicines and for optimal, optimal health. This is so incredibly exciting. When are you going to publish the results of your trial? Um, we'll, we'll write it up in a peer review trial here pretty soon publication. Okay. It's um, the results are now I put a video together for it. The other thing we measured was actually antioxidant biomarkers. So this is the second part of the trial is that we measured malandialdehyde. So these are aldehyde levels. We measured catalase function. We also measured superoxide dismutase levels and we had a very, very powerful correlation. This is, and this is probably even, this will be really exciting. Well, it's exciting to me, hopefully to your readers as well. So when you get oxidative stress, okay, there's many mechanisms. The first phase is this superoxide rattle gets formed. And that normally gets neutralized by an enzyme that we all have called superoxide dismutase. And when that's mutated, we have other diseases like ALS, for example. And then that takes the superoxide radical and converts it to hydrogen peroxide, which is less damaging than the superoxide radical, but still not good. Then this hydrogen peroxide gets neutralized by either your glutathione peroxidases or catalase or plasmalogens will neutralize them. But if that doesn't happen, those peroxides will eventually um, oxidize lipids, lipid membranes, and you get called peroxidated lipids. And that's the, that's the nasty stuff. That's the stuff that causes right. inflammation. That's what causes- Cardiovascular disease. Exactly. And, yeah. And um, 
so malandialdehyde is a more sensitive biomarker. So C-reactive protein is kind of like a biomarker of oxidative stress, but malandialdehyde is much more specific. So we measured MDA levels and we had a very, very powerful p-value of 10 to the minus seven in a small trial like this was in it's crazy. So, so we looked at people that had high MDA levels versus no low MDA levels and everyone that had high MDA levels, plasmalgins neutralized them. So we, we reduced the aldehyde levels. Um, so oxidative stress markers went really went down. Um, then when we, when we reduced MDA levels, catalase is an enzyme, it's a protein. It's actually physically working to neutralize hydrogen peroxide. So when we reduced the peroxide load with plasmalogens, all of a sudden catalase levels started recovering. And so we had a recovery of catalase activity in individuals. And we also had improvements in SOD. So very, very powerful mechanistic data. On average, blood plasmalogen levels were doubled to, and more in people. So very simple. It was a dose-dependent effect. People from one mil to two to four, we had increasing levels of plasmalogens in the blood. So we know the molecule gets in the gut gets absorbed. And so that's all. So that video is going live now. So we, all your re readers can check our website. That'll be all that, all that data is already available for everybody. So. Oh, fabulous. And we'll um, share a link to that in our show notes as yep. well. So, I mean, this is astounding news. This I've is been, the first time in human history. This I is the know. first time in human history we've been able to target and elevate specific blood plasmalogens. Okay, we've known okay. about them for over 100 years. It's the very, very how first was, time. Yeah, how was your done. presentation received? Because I've been following the news out of the AAIC, and I've been disappointed with what's come out. Why aren't they reporting on this? Well, they're, they're, they've got a lot of drug work going on right now with I the amyloid drug. And, um, yeah. yeah, and so you have to be a little... Um, Forgiving. I'm disappointed. Well, I'm, I'm disappointed, disappointed. But it, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough world out there in terms of, and these in, these institutions, they need to live, okay? And they're funded by donations, okay? And their ability to get things done. Um, the delivery mechanisms of, like, so they're, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place in many things. Like they funded this trial. So they're doing this kind of work. The challenge is really in, is in the delivery mechanisms. It's how do you, like, it's, it's, what do you do with a trial like this afterwards, right? The pharmaceutical industry has a very simple delivery mechanism, right? They get the FDA approval. You go, yeah. pharmacy delivers it. Your doctor can prescribe yeah. it. And it's, it's a very, and it can get distributed to everybody very quickly. Okay. So there's a, there's a model there and they have to, and the Alzheimer's association has to be kind of an open tent for all people. So they do do a lot of epidemiological studies. They do a lot of nutritional studies. The problem with the nutritional work and even the stuff that we're doing as exciting as it is. Okay. Is that we still need to solve the delivery problem. How do we get that to everybody? And that's the biggest thing. That that's for me. To, to my biggest focus is that. Is that an educational hurdle, number one. Educational, then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you need to, you know, explain to people uh, all about plasmalogen levels. Doctors aren't doing this. No, they're getting there though. Like our our network of doctors is growing dramatically, and awesome. and really at the end, the proof is whether it works or not in you and your family. Okay. And right. doctors are really excited because they're seeing dramatic results in their patients, right? The anecdotal stories that we get from patients, okay, in their in their loved ones. Okay. 
one of the biggest problems that we had to break down is people don't expect health anymore. Okay, they expect to live with disease. They don't. We right. we've we've convinced people that you cannot recover from disease. Um. So it, it and it's a it's a very so you you kind of have to it's break your yeah paradigm shift absolutely right because people have to realize that you know you shouldn't be sick like there isn't like you know right. the human body is designed to work and if it's not working it's because something's just not you know balanced properly in it and so and that's what we do with biochemical engineering is that we deal with very simple straightforward biochemical stuff okay and you can measure it before and after you can fix it everything we talk about you can fix yourself and and then you can look at your own results your own self and your own life. And, and as we grow, that's what we'll continue to do. And then that's a, it will, it will become mainstream where we are. We are in the, the beginning of a, a major shift. The pharmaceutical industry is whether they admit it or not, it is imploding. Like this new Alzheimer's drug, like there are $35,000 a year for amyloid lowering. Like, are you kidding me? Actually, more than that, 56,000. 56 or whatever it is. It's crazy. Okay. And it doesn't even work. And so, (laughs) well, well, be careful. Like the drug actually works perfectly. Okay. For the mechanism. Like what it's designed to do is designed to lower amyloid. And it absolutely does that. So in terms of what its mechanisms of action does, the drug works perfectly. Okay. It does exactly what it said to do. Just like statins, statins work. Statins, you take a statin, your blood cholesterol levels will go down like clockwork. Okay. Now the question is, is whether or not that's useful or not. That's a different question. Okay. So that, so pharmacologically, the drugs do exactly what they're designed to do. The question really is, is what they're designed to do have any positive health consequence to anybody is it totally it's not so far but <laughs> they've got nine years to gather more evidence so we'll see it's an interesting toy and then you know you got a lot of scientists out there they're they're you know it takes years to get government grants okay so changing trajectories in public research is not trivial okay and it's very competitive and it's um and they get one little advancement at a time and so you can't all of a sudden say, oh, we're going to switch gears to something else. When you have thousands of scientists studying tau and amyloid and the different, all these little real esoteric protein, this and protein that, um, those grants have already been granted. They're expected to deliver results on them and talk about them. And, and so it takes a while. Okay. So I think the world has to be a bit patient. We yeah. will. It's a, You've it's got be- a great attitude, but I've been in this space now for about nine years. And what you've accomplished is nothing short of amazing. And I am so excited to share that with our with our listeners. And I feel badly we've taken it. Oh, oh yeah. We do like this gap all the time here. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, yeah. Got, and you might have to cut this into multiple interviews if you want to, but yeah. it's like people can, that's, that's two people having a conversation. You and me, Julie, it's about oh, no, logical it's stuff. Absolutely amazing. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your work. We're going to have lots of links in the show notes um, so that people can access a program scan. They can access a supplement. They can see trial results and they can also see parts of your lecture series. Yep, the um, APOE4 one specifically for people, I think people will want to know. It just gets straight to the root of the matter. Right, absolutely. I have one last question. Where can people get a copy of your book? So you can go to prodrome.com. Okay. It's there. It's also on Amazon. 
And so oh, you can Breaking download Alzheimer's. I love the title. So it is. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Very exciting. I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and thank you for your work. It's really exciting. Well, thank you, Julie. Right. You guys have a wonderful afternoon. Okay, you too. Take Cheers. care, Dan. All right. Bye-bye. The APOE4.info community of citizen scientists is on a mission to learn what strategies move us toward vibrant health and away from the pathologies associated with our high-risk gene. If you're another carrier or suspect you might be based upon family history, or even if you just want to learn how to protect your brain and heart, be sure to check us out on the web at APOE4.info.